Well, if you have a Bible this morning, I want to uh, go ahead and ask you to turn over to First Peter chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, uh, you should know we, we take a small section of the scriptures, most weeks it's small, and try to understand them at this time of our worship services each week. And for the last several months together, we've been walking through an old, old letter written by one of Jesus' friends about what it means to be a Christian, especially what it means to be a Christian in, an, in a world full of people who aren't Christians. So Peter was writing to some of the first Christians that ever were. So almost everybody they knew wouldn't have been a Christian. That's why he describes them as sojourners or alien, aliens, a kind of foreigners living in someone else's place with someone else's values, trying to navigate what it is to be faithful to one king when you live under another emperor. And that's what this letter's about. It's about how to manage that kind of dual uh, place, placement in this world, but not of it. One of the main themes that we've seen Peter talk about that he comes back to in the text we're going to look at this morning is suffering. One of the things he's assumed would be true for all people who are with Jesus is that sometimes because you're living in a world that's not for Jesus, your attachment to Jesus is going to cost you. Now, in some other uh, texts, we've, we've had different angles come at this same big theme or big subject. We've talked about why we should expect to suffer, about why we should ask questions if we aren't, about what sorts of suffering we should expect now, living where we do, and how that might be different from, from where Peter's readers lived. We're not going to cover those kind of themes this morning because we've, we've touched on those earlier in, in, our, in our series. What we're going to try to zoom in on this morning is what Peter does in this text. When he comes to suffering here at the end of chapter 4, the interesting thing he says about it is that it should make you rejoice. When you suffer, not just in general, but specifically for being a Christian, you should rejoice. How do we make sense of that call? The command is really straightforward, but it is... It's not expected, and it's hard to understand why it should be true. I can understand hunkering down and just experiencing the suffering, that this is just something you've got to get through so that you can get to where you're going, a necessary evil, if you will. But for Peter, it seems that it's more than that. There's, a, there's something about this suffering that's good It's not just that you should rejoice while you're having a hard time in spite of the hard time because you belong to Jesus. That's true. He's already said that back in chapter one. Here he's taking it one step further and saying, precisely because you suffer, rejoice. All I want to do this morning is try to understand why. I want to give you four reasons that Peter gives to us for why we should rejoice when we suffer as Christians. Four reasons that when you suffer for being a Christian, you can rejoice. I want to begin by reading the text for this morning. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up reading in chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, and then I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, which is verse 19. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. You can be seated. I'm going to try to pull out for you the four things I think Peter points us to as reasons to rejoice when you suffer because you're a Christian. Why rejoice? First of all, rejoice because you're one with Jesus. Maybe you notice in the first couple of verses we read, the first one is just, the first verse, verse 12, is just him saying, don't be surprised when you, when you suffer. This is part of what you should expect. It's kind of a package deal with being a Christian. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We talked about it like, like diapers are a package deal with, with taking care of an infant. It's not a surprise. It's not necessarily what drew you to the care of an infant, but, but, it, but it's a package deal. You're not surprised by it. So similarly, for Christians, the suffering is not why you become a Christian. It's not like you, you just love to suffer and therefore you identify with Jesus. But, but when you do identify with Jesus, you should expect it. There's nothing strange about it. It's a package deal. And then in verse 13, he gives us the basic command that hovers over the whole passage, and that is the command to rejoice. Rejoice, he says, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, here's what I think Peter's saying there. In that verse, I think what Peter's getting at is a huge theme in the Bible and a really important part of what we call the gospel. If, if you're not familiar with Christianity, maybe, maybe you've already noticed this word come up several times this morning. Gospel is a word we use a lot. It just means good news. And at the heart of the gospel, really at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, if you're wondering what it means this morning, at the heart of what it means is to trust in Jesus to be righteous for you because you haven't been righteous for yourself. At the heart of the gospel is an exchange that God offers as a free gift to anyone who will take it. An exchange of, of our sin, of our shame, and our guilt for Christ's perfect track record. The message of the gospel is that Jesus came to us, lived a life that was perfect in, in every way. He always and only did what his father commanded him to do. And that he died anyway, even though he didn't deserve it, so that he could give his perfect life to us as our track record, as if we were perfect like him. And that his death for us could cover our sins so that we don't have to pay the penalty that our sins deserve. And one of the ways the Bible talks about that idea, that we get what Christ deserves when we trust in him, is to talk about it as union with Jesus to be one with Christ. And all the New Testament writers go there. To be one with Christ means I'm identified with him. What's true about him is now true about me. What he got, I will get. Now, mostly when the New Testament talks about this theme that we're identified with Christ, it's talking about the wonderful incredible message that God looks on us and sees his perfect beloved son. When he looks on us, he's pleased with us because he sees Jesus. But there's another angle on this one with Christ. It's bigger than just that piece. To be identified with Christ also means 
that when the world sees us, they also see Jesus. When the world sees us, they identify us with him and will react towards us the same way that they reacted towards him. That means that being identified with Jesus involves us in Jesus' sufferings. In chapter 3, Peter has said already that Jesus suffered for us in a unique way, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he could bring us to God. But that doesn't mean that even though his suffering is unique in that way, that we won't share it in our own way. The same forces that opposed him and led to his death will come after those who identified with him. (coughs) Excuse me. I think that's what Peter's saying when he says, rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings. That's the kind of sufferings he means we would share in. But, but why rejoice? Why is that good news? I think the reason it's a, a, a cause for rejoicing is that when you suffer for being a Christian, it shows you are. It shows who you are. It shows that you're one with him. If you weren't willing to suffer like he did, if, if your identity in the world never caused any kind of suffering like his, then there'd be good reasons to wonder whether you are identified with him at all. Whether he was constricting, confining who you are in the world in the way that he should. So, so take, take the National Predators, for example. They got a big bandwagon right now, don't they? I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands on if you had a Predators jersey before they went to the playoffs for the first time. But I'm guessing most of you, even those of you who now root for the Preds, didn't have one back then. What, if, what does it say about your fandom for the Preds if, if being a fan of them, if identifying with them never cost you anything? If you never spend any of your time paying attention to how they're doing? If you never stayed up late to catch a West Coast game? Joining them in some of the costs that they're paying to travel out there? What if you never bought or wore any of their gear? What if you never wept over the 2017 Stanley Cup playoff loss? If you didn't share the team's experience, at least at some level, wouldn't it show that you didn't really, not fully, identify with them? And if you did weep with them in the 2017 Stanley Cup playoff loss, wouldn't that show that you were one with them? And even in the pain of it, there would be some solidarity. And it's not a perfect analogy of what Peter's trying to say here, but I do think it gets towards the point that if you never shared anything of Christ's experience, what would that say? Oh, but if you do suffer because you own his name, well, there's a reason to rejoice because if you share his sufferings, you've got something else waiting for you too. That's what Peter says at the end of this verse. Rejoice when you share his sufferings. It shows you're with him. You're one with him. You're identified with Jesus. Rejoice when you share his sufferings so that you can also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So when you're one with Jesus, you don't just get the pain of it. You also get the exaltation, the glory, the perfect oneness with your father for all of eternity. You get what he enjoys now as your future. So rejoice. The fact that you're suffering with him shows you're going to get that one day too. I think that's what he means. Rejoice when you suffer for being a Christian because you're one with Jesus. It shows it. There's more though. Look at verse 14. 
Here, I think in verse 14, he tells us, rejoice when you suffer because you're a Christian, because God's spirit is in you. That's what it shows when you suffer for being with Jesus. Look at verse 14. It says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, which is kind of a little clue as to what kind of suffering they're experiencing so far. It hasn't gotten to the point where they're going to be killed yet. That, that will come eventually. But so far, it's, it's about being ashamed. It's be, it being insulted, being publicly called out in a, in a place where honor and shame were a huge part of your, of your life and, 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 and matter a lot more even than they do today. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, he says, you're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Well, when he says that you're blessed when you suffer, when you're insulted, he's just echoing something Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. Almost a direct quote from Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are you when people revile you or persecute you or say evil things against you falsely for my name. Blessed are you. Jesus is saying that the glory and shame you once lived for, well, it's inverted now. There's something new now a new kind of shame and a new kind of glory that matters to you. Peter's saying the same thing that Jesus said, but his reason is what I want to focus on here. Rejoice because when you're insulted, you show that the spirit of, of glory and of God rests upon you. What's that about? What's the connection between being insulted by others and experiencing the glory of God's spirit in you? Here's what I think he means. I think he has something in mind that he's already mentioned before in his letter. It, it, what, he's, what he's already said, I, I want to refer you to a sermon from the very beginning of chapter four. It's another sermon about suffering and it fills in a lot of the gaps that we'll be leaving there for today. So it might be, if you, if you weren't here two or three weeks ago when we covered the f- first part of chapter four, it might be good to go and listen to that one later this week to, to supplement what I'm saying now. But in, the, in those verses, well, one of the things we talked about it's, it's Peter's point that when you're willing to suffer with Jesus, even it, when, when you're willing to identify with him, even though it costs you, it shows that you have broken from what you once lived for. It shows that something new is precious to you. Before, when you were guided by nothing more than basic human passions, he said, when that's what carried you through life like a wave that you didn't try to, to swim back against, well, what you wanted more than anything was to be well-liked or to, to, to have some sort of good reputation, to be affirmed. When that's what you wanted, then, then, then the kind of shame and insult, this insults that you're living with now would have, been, would have been devastating to you. But when you're willing to give up what you used to live for, when now you're willing to be insulted and not, not mind it, that's a sign that you love something else more, that your heart has changed, that you've got something else that's precious to you. In other words, it's a sign that God's spirit is in you. One of the things that's attached to God's spirit in the promises of his spirit in the Old Testament, in, in Jeremiah's prophecy, in Ezekiel's prophecy, the, the prophets are looking ahead to a promise that the Holy Spirit coming to us has fulfilled. And the promise was that when the spirit is in you, you will be changed from the inside out. Your heart will change and then your life will change. And your heart will now love what God loves. His law will be written on it. So it's no longer about these outside rules and pressures that hold you back. It'll be about this internal drive that loves what he loves. You'll, You'll obey him because you want to. That's the mark that the Spirit's in you. And I think what Peter's saying here is when you get insulted and you don't care, It's a sign that you love something new. 
And in other words, it's a sign that God's spirit rests upon you. He's changing you. Rejoice. You never would have done this before. One of the best places to see the miracle that is the spirit's work in our hearts. One of the clearest places that this work shows up is when you love something more than the comfort or the fame or the chance to climb your social ladder that once was everything to you. Now, speaking of what your heart wants more, I think this same line of thought carries us into the next couple of verses. Why should you rejoice when you suffer as a Christian? Well, it's a great sign that you're identified with Jesus and Jesus ultimately gets glory. You will too. Rejoice. It's a great sign that God's spirit is in you. Why else would you give up what you used to live for? And thirdly, you rejoice when you suffer as a Christian because this suffering gives you a precious opportunity. Your suffering, in your suffering as a Christian, you get to glorify God. And that's everything to you now. Let me show you where this is coming from. Uh, let me show you how this works. So Peter, in verse 15, he, he, he pauses just for a second and, and qualifies what he's been saying. He's been saying, it's good for you when you're suffering. You, you should rejoice. It means good things for you. But then he says, now, now wait a second. Now, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even as a meddler. Now, now, when you suffer for those reasons, you're not suffering in the way that I'm talking about. So don't get it confused. Suffering in and of itself doesn't matter. He's saying... It matters why you suffer. Now, if you suffer as, as someone who, who's stolen something from somebody else, that's just justice, isn't it? Or if you suffer even for being a meddler, somebody who pokes around in other people's business. Well, I mean, nobody likes a meddler. So naturally, if you're meddling, you're, you should expect people to react negatively to you. That makes sense. The story in that kind of suffering is you deserved it. This is justice. You brought it on yourself. That kind of suffering is not a reason to rejoice, but a reason to repent. Uh, but, but, verse 16, if you suffer simply for being a Christian, if you suffer as a Christian for no other reason than that you live under the name of Jesus, well, that's a different story to tell. The story of that suffering is not you getting what you deserve. The story in that suffering is not you bringing it on yourself. The story in that suffering is you found something precious. You found something you're drawn to that makes you willing to sell all you have as if it were nothing. You found something more precious to you even than the sweetest of praises from other people. When you suffer because of Jesus, in other words, you're saying Jesus is worth it and that glorifies God. It's a reflection on him, not on you. I, I think he's echoing here when he says this, let, let him glorify God in that name, saying, yes, you are worth all of this. I think he's echoing something Jesus talked about in, in a couple of the really short but power-packed parables that he tells. Jesus told the parable of a man who finds a treasure in a field Oh, the questions here. How did he find it? Whose field was it? He doesn't answer these questions. He says, a man's just wandering along, apparently, stumbles over a treasure, buries the treasure, 
goes home and sells everything that he has so that he can buy the field with the treasure in it and make it his own. The kingdom is like that, Jesus said. It's worth all you have and then some. Then he talks about the merchant who who deals in pearls. His life's quest is to find more beautiful pearls to sell. And then somewhere along the line, I don't know, a flea market or something, Craigslist, whatever, he finds a precious one. Unlike any pearl he's ever seen, he's got to have this pearl. Sells everything he has and liquidates his entire stock just so that he can own this pearl for himself. Jesus is saying the kingdom is like that. It's worth more than than anything. And Jesus, Peter like him, is really just echoing the message of, say, Psalm 73, where the psalmist looks around at the wicked and they're they're flourishing. He sees all the good things that they have, the easy lives that they're living, the wealth that they take for granted, and he thinks, they're wicked, and look what it got them. Why don't I just join them in that? But by the end has realized, oh, they don't have you. They may have easy lives. They may have full bank accounts. They don't have you. And he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. What Peter is saying is just echoing this message that rings throughout all of the scriptures. His friendship is the pearl of great price, the treasure worth selling everything to obtain. And when you suffer simply because you belong to Jesus, not because you've done anything to bring it on yourself, simply because you belong to Jesus, then anyone who's watching is getting, if they'll see it, they're getting a true and God-glorifying statement about the preciousness of what he offers. He's worth it. So don't be ashamed, but glorify God. Now, friends, there's one more thing I want to make sure you notice about this text. One more reason for rejoicing when you suffer for being a Christian. And it brings us to what, to me, is the most difficult part of the passage. The most difficult one to understand. It's it's what Peter says in verses 17 to 19. Now, one thing that's pretty clear is that he's still making the same overall point. We should rejoice when we suffer as Christians. We should expect it to happen, shouldn't be surprised about it, and in fact, we should rejoice in it. He's still making that main point. But here he says you should rejoice because this suffering is part of God's judgment. He's saying that's a judgment that begins with God's people, but then covers everybody everywhere. So to me, the questions that are raised here in these verses are, are how is this suffering for being a Christian God's judgment? And how could being judged by God be a reason to rejoice? Now, to get at these questions, let me, let, me just, let me just briefly, let me briefly tell you something about what I think this judgment means, what he means when he says judgment here. And then I'm going to say something about why it's a reason to rejoice. What does he mean by judgment? I'm going to say something about that and then why this judgment is a reason to rejoice. I think we have to be careful to make sure we're not confusing what sort of judgment Peter's talking about. When he's talking about judgment here, don't think punishment. Think assessment. Don't think judgment as a sentence passed and executed. Sometimes judgment has that connotation in the scriptures. This is 
bound up with it down the road. But for here, not what he has in mind. He has assessment in mind. This suffering, in other words, is not God punishing his people. That would make no sense in this part of the letter because Peter's just said, you're suffering because you don't de- when, when you don't deserve it. I mean, you didn't do anything wrong to bring it on yourself. The whole point is suffering only for being a Christian. So there, there's no reason for punishment here. It's not that kind of judgment. That'd be completely out of place in what he's saying. It's not a punishment for sin. Now, what, what he has here in mind is the beginnings of a judgment he's referred to a bit earlier and that the Bible speaks about a lot. It's a judgment in which God weighs every person, living and dead, past and present. A judgment in which God evaluates us and separates us into those who trust Christ and have him standing for them and those who stand for themselves with their own works to stand on. Jesus talked a lot about this judgment. He used images like separating the wheat from the tares in a field, like separating the sheep from the goats in a flock, like separating the, diff- like the difference between a narrow way that's easy and followed by many, and a, or excuse me, a broad way that's easy and followed by many and a narrow way that's hard and few enter it. This separating work is a work the Bible often speaks about. And it's that work of separation that I think Peter has in mind here when he talks about this, this sort of judgment that's already beginning for Christians in their suffering. What that means is this isn't a judgment in which God punishes Christians for their sins, but in which God is proving the genuineness of their faith, in which God is weeding out the wheat from the tares, separating out counterfeit faith from genuine. I think that's, the kind, that's what he means by judgment here. A judgment that begins with the household of God and then spreads, as he refers to in verses 17 and 18, to to the rest of the world. So if this is the judgment he has in mind, that God is even here through the suffering of Christians separating wheat and tares, sheep and goats, true faith and counterfeit faith, if that judgment is happening through persecution, why is that a reason to rejoice? And here I want to zoom out just a bit. Here, I think we need the help of the broader letter to understand what he means. Because when Peter starts out this section saying, referring to a testing by fire, he's he's calling on language he's already used once before. In chapter one, near the very beginning of the letter, he talks about rejoicing, uses this same language to rejoice even now for a little while, even though now for a while you're being grieved by various trials. Rejoice still, he says, because... These trials are testing the genuineness of your faith, making your faith more precious than gold which perishes in fire. In other words, these trials are refining you. They're not not tearing down your faith. They're not destroying it. They're strengthening it. They are purifying it of things in it that were holding it back from the power and the beauty and the, the rest that you could enjoy in that faith. That was his message in chapter 1, and I think he's echoing it here when he says, this fiery trial come upon you to test you. It's a reason to rejoice. This is not destroying your faith, but purifying it. In other words, and this is the way I've put it on your worship guide if you're following along, this suffering, 
rejoice when you suffer as a Christian because this is a suffering that is preparing you for heaven. It's refining you. It's part of how God prepares his children for his presence. It isn't God leaving you on your own, Peter is saying. It isn't him pulling out. It's him bringing you closer. What Peter's saying is that God is, basically what he's saying is, God has turned the purposes of this suffering on its head. What the world means to destroy you by, God uses to save you. Just as he did with the, with the death of his own son. The forces of darkness rose up against Jesus and literally banished him from the world. They drove him out of life. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And all of our hope depends on what those evil people did for evil. What he's telling us now is that even now when you suffer as a Christian, what is meant to hurt you to destroy you, to maybe even banish your way of living, thinking, believing from the world. God uses to make you stronger. If this seems like a ridiculous way to respond to suffering, Peter would almost agree with you. Almost. Though instead of ridiculous, the word Peter would use is alien, foreign, an exiled, sojourning way to think about life in the world. It is a foreign way to think about pain and sorrow in this life. A way that only makes sense in light of a bigger story to which you've trusted your life. In the kingdom that God has come to build, the kingdom Peter's writing about, suffering is blessing, shame is glory, pain is purifying, not destructive. And the will that brings suffering is a will of love. Friends, accepting this story in our suffering is is only possible through a desperate act of trust. Through what Peter points us to in verse 19. Are you suffering because you're a Christian, he says? Well, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator and keep doing good. The only way to forge ahead with this story in your suffering is to trust them. And that means the most important tool we have right now for this moment is prayer. So I'm going to pray that God will give us the faith to suffer and to rejoice in solidarity with our Savior. Let's pray. Father, I I know that what Peter has written here is too much for us in our own strength to believe and to accept. It raises questions for us about why you would do things the way that you do, why this would be how you bring us to you and prepare us for your presence. And we can think of so many other ways that we would have chosen to do this work. And so what we pray to you for is the ability to shut down the judge inside of us that would stand over your ways and micromanage how you execute your will and and be in a position to evaluate you and your goodness, that you would help us to check out of that role and to trust you as a faithful and good creator. Father, we know only your spirit's work in our hearts can give us the ability 
to trust you like that. We know we don't deserve anything good from your hand. Our one and only hope is that Jesus has been good for us. That he has overcome the evil in us to give us a new identity in this world. We pray that you would help us to own it and embrace it and to offer it to anybody who will listen and to do that with hope and confidence in Jesus' name. Amen.